Hello, I'm Brandon Martini, a commercial pilot and flight instructor. And I'm Carson Vasquez. I'm a private pilot. And you're listening to the Aviation Mentors Podcast, sponsored by Stratus Financial. So buckle up, because the Aviation Mentors are taking off. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for joining me today. Carson is unfortunately sick today during our recording day, so it's just going to be me talking about some awesome questions from Reddit. So this is our part three in our series of uh, common Reddit questions that student pilots and pilots alike have have been asking. So I'm going to take a stab at five different questions today, and uh, let's see what happens. Uh, So our producers have come up with five questions for me. I haven't seen them yet. So we're going to go one by one and see what they're all about. And hopefully I can give some insight on those. So the first question is, all right, guys. So I'm a student pilot who's about to finish training. And I had a question. I know, obviously, you have to get checked out before you can go and rent aircraft. My question is, where exactly do you rent aircraft from? I know you can rent aircraft from flight schools, but does anyone else offer aircraft for rentals? I'm asking because I don't want to sound like an idiot when I call Signature and ask if they have planes for rent. This is a great question today. So I'm so happy I, I get to answer it. Um, I had this question, and to an extent, a lot of people will, will have this question actually quite often, depending on what kind of program they're in with their flight school. I mean, if they fly by themselves at their flight school, uh, that's like a Part 61 flight school, uh, they can just rent an airplane from their current flight school, maybe even the one that they learned how to fly. But if you fly at like a collegiate program or a 141 school, they might not even allow you to rent aircraft. I know uh, one of the larger flight schools in the U.S., they don't allow aircraft rentals at all. The best place to, to kind of go about it, if you're already a pilot, you likely already have ForeFlight. Uh, in ForeFlight, you can look up FBOs uh, at each airport, and you can find out what flight schools are there at each individual airport that you're going to be at. And you can give them a call and find out if they rent aircraft. Now, most of them are just going to require you to fill out uh, all of their documentation, hold harmless, rental agreement, things like that. Then they're also going to ask you to do a written test, kind of like your pre-solo written that you did before you soloed at your your current flight school. Uh, And they're also going to have to do a checkout with you. Sometimes it's a really easy hour checkout. And some schools, they'll actually take quite a long time to to check you out on the airplane. Like if you've never flown a Cirrus before and you don't even have a high performance endorsement, then you're probably not going to get checked out to go fly that airplane. Now, if you fly a 172 November model or an SP model, um, and it has pretty much the same cockpit that you're used to, you might be able to go get checked out in that in about an hour. But I'll tell you this, if you're a low time pilot, you just got your private and you've got 55 or 60 hours, that flight school might make you take a little bit longer to, to get checked out to rent their airplanes. And they may even ask you to have renter's insurance. So I would look into renter's insurance before you even start making these phone calls. You can also join a flying club. Flying clubs essentially allow you to rent airplanes. But if you're out and about, I know the there was one time I wanted to rent an airplane uh, outside of my state. I was going to New York City and I wanted to rent an airplane from somebody and I wanted to go fly the, the Hudson Corridor. Uh, unfortunately, the weather didn't quite work out when I was going to go there and do a checkout. But it sounded to me like they didn't really want me to do a checkout to go fly that Hudson Corridor and use their aircraft just in case it got violated. So there's going to be certain circumstances, even somebody with a couple thousand hours, uh, they're not going to let take their airplane. But I've also been to other places where I, I literally have a guy who I meet on the airfield and he just throws me the keys and says, I eh, put gas in it. So you never know uh, where you're going to meet somebody. 
The question that this individual asked about Signature, Signature does not uh, rent airplanes typically. They might have a flight school in one of their FBOs. So if you call up a place like Signature, you can ask them, hey, do you know anybody who rents airplanes locally at that airport? And that might be a way that you can go about it. I would go that route. Other than that, it's mostly flight schools that will rent you airplanes. And I would already have renter's insurance kind of ready to go uh, in advance. Uh, there's also certain types of airplanes that no one will rent you. Like no one will rent you a seaplane. That's just not going to happen. No one will likely rent you a, a high-performance twin or even a twin, that matter. So you need to kind of look and see what you're ready to fly and just call around and, and you'll eventually find somebody uh, that can rent an airplane to you. All right. The next question, um, another person that thinks that there's stupid questions in this world. Obviously, I've already said there's no such thing as stupid questions in previous episodes. So there's no such thing as a stupid question. But this person said, sorry if this is a stupid question, but I'm a student pilot. I'm confused on how FBOs work. I know what they do and the importance of them, but what do you need to call them beforehand? Also, how do you know how much you'll be charged? How do you know what to choose? And finally, how do you courtesy cars work? I've heard of them, but I don't understand how it works. This is a great question because I had no idea how FBOs worked when I first became a pilot either. And once you kind of understand the system, they are amazing. Uh, I go to FBOs all the time whenever I'm flying around and they always have awesome cookies or snacks or free drinks or, or even if they just have water bottles that they give you. It's, it's really fantastic. Uh, the first thing is make sure you know your marshalling signals. You barely probably touched on these in private pilot, if, if at all. So look in your aim and go look up what the marshalling signals are. You especially need to know which way is left, which way is right, and especially which one is stop. Because there's going to be a guy or a girl standing in front of your airplane giving you signals on where to park. And you definitely need to know what those signals mean, especially the stop one. Otherwise, you could run them over or just go into a spot that you shouldn't be going or, or something like that. So make sure you know what those marshalling signals are. The next thing is, if you're looking for FBOs, I mentioned on that last question uh, about ForeFlight. ForeFlight offers a list of FBOs on the airport view. So it can, it'll tell you. Uh, mostly, if you go to like large airports, you're going to see Atlantic or Signature um, or something like that. Uh, but there's also really cool FBOs. Uh, I was just at one the other day in Deer Valley. It's called Cutter Aviation. And uh, they're a fantastic little FBO. I go there all the time in Deer Valley. And uh, when I was picking up an airplane, uh, they also have another location uh, in Albuquerque that I go to. It's my first stop every year on my way to Oshkosh or my second stop, really. And uh, they actually have free salsa. I don't know if they've been doing it since COVID, but they give you little jars of salsa that's really good. It's like hatch green chili salsa. But how would you know which one to go to? Do you want to go to Atlantic? Do you want to go to Signature? Do you want to go to Cutter? Do you want to go to a local FBO that just is owned by by somebody small? Uh, like at my personal airport at Riverside Airport, there's an FBO called RAS Jetport. And that's owned by just an individual. Um, and he's got, he used to have two locations, but now he just has one at Riverside. So which one would you want to go to? Now, at Riverside, you only have one option to go to that FBO, or you can go to um, Raincross Fuel, but that's not really an FBO. They're just a fuel provider. So I would look up that. You can also go to airnav.com and you could look up your the airport you're going to, and it'll tell you some of the FBOs that are at that airport. Now, which one would you want to pick? I pick the one that either I already have experience with that had really good service. Um, the one that has nice hot cookies or brownies when you arrive, just like Cutter does at, uh, at Deer Valley. Um, or you can pick what has the cheapest fuel, which I've done a million times. Uh, you'll notice that 
especially if you go to an airport like Long Beach Airport in Southern California, the difference in fuel price for 100 uh, low lead uh, between Atlantic and Signature is like a dollar a gallon. So if you're getting 40, 40 gallons of fuel, that's $40 savings. You can also call and ask them. I know this person asked how much you'll be charged. So that's a good indicator. You can also ask them, hey, do you have any landing fees or facility fees? Or you can just say, what are your fees for me landing at your airport? And they're normally going to ask you what kind of airplane you're going to fly in. So if you fly in a Gulfstream, you're going to get charged a different price than if you fly in a Cessna 172. Uh, typically. Now, there's some exceptions to every rule at different places, but typically if you have a single or a twin or a, a mid-sized twin or a, or a light jet or a heavy jet, you're going to get charged different prices. So make sure that you call the, call the FBO and ask them what those fees are. Some of them have no fees. I know I go to Henderson quite often and uh, they don't charge any fee for landing there um, at all, but they do charge, I think, $15 a day uh, to park your airplane there. Uh, but they give the first day free if you take a certain number of gallons in fuel. And I think it's 10 or 15 gallons of fuel and they'll waive the first night's uh, parking fee. But there's other FBOs like in Las Vegas uh, airport. Uh, I go to Atlantic typically when I go to Las Vegas because I've just had a really good experience there. Uh, but they used to charge like $75 or $85 a night for parking plus landing fees, plus facility fees, all these other things. The last time I went there was I think... I don't know, six or eight months ago. And I believe their fee was down to like $35 and I flew a light twin there. Uh, so it's gone down quite a bit at that particular FBO. But essentially, you just need to call and ask. Ask the questions. Everyone at these FBOs is, are typically really nice to you. And they're really going to kind of tell you tell you what their fees are and, and how they work. And you can always look at a map to know exactly where they're at on the field. Sometimes it's really inconvenient if you're landing on one runway at, say, an international airport, and you've got to taxi all the way across to the other side of the of the airport, you might not want to do that. So uh, that brings up another situation, though. If you are landing at a, a big international airport, uh, ask for the particular runway that might be closest to your FBO uh, and see if they give it to you. That'll actually speed up everything. You won't be taxiing on the ground for 45 minutes or 30 minutes. You can just land, get off the runway, go to your FBO, especially if you're renting an airplane. I mean, you're paying based on that Hobbs time typically, uh, not off the tack. So if you're getting, if you're getting billed off the Hobbs time, you might as well go as fast as you can down to the runway, the one that's closest to your FBO, and then taxi off and go, go over to that other FBO. Some FBOs are actually just at an airport that are maintained by the airport. So I've gone to a number of FBOs that don't really have a name. It's just by the airport, like the airport association uh, has the FBO or the city owns the FBO. So it could be XYZ city and they don't even call an FBO, but XYZ city FBO. Uh, and you can go in there and they'll typically have uh, a pilot lounge and, and somewhere to do flight planning and check weather, stuff like that. I hope that that explains all of that. This individual also want to know how courtesy cars work. If you go to a little tiny airport, uh, courtesy cars are sometimes awesome. I remember going to this little airport in Kansas. There was no one there and it was a piece of junk car. I mean, junk, junk car. Um, I don't even know how it was like, I want to call it airworthy, but how it was, was uh, worthy of being driven by anybody. This thing felt like it was falling apart when I took it. But literally, they had a sign up on the counter and it just said, Hey, if, uh, if you want to use the car, grab the keys and, uh, and put some gas in it or whatever it said on the sign. And no one was there. They just literally had the keys. So I get in this little, I think it was a Pontiac Aztec, like the ugliest car 
ever made in life. So I would like to say no offense to anybody who has a Pontiac Aztec, but if you own one, that car is absolutely ugly. Uh, please get rid of it or maybe put in a demolition derby or something ridiculously fun like that. Right. But so that's how that works. Also, you can call ahead and some FBOs will reserve courtesy cars for you. They don't like doing it for little small 172 pilots very often. They'll normally say first come first serve. But if you can sweet talk them, sometimes they'll let you do it. Also, most courtesy cars only let you take the vehicle for one hour, two hours, or even four hours. I mean, I've, I've went to a lot of places where they, they'll let you take it for four hours. But if you get there late at night and you're really, really, really nice to the person at the front counter, sometimes you can sweet talk them into letting you use it overnight. It kind of depends on their manager and what kind of FBO they are. But I've sweet talked some people into letting me use it overnight as long as I promise to get it back by like 7 a.m. or something like that. And uh, I've done that in uh, New Orleans. Uh, they've, they've been nice enough to let me take the car overnight before, uh, which was really, really awesome. Uh, and then there's other times where, where they, they haven't let me do that. But uh, it doesn't hurt to ask. So just ask them if they've got a, a courtesy car um, or an airport vehicle you can use, uh, things like that. And, and just ask, well, what's the worst they can say? No, I don't have one. And then you just call an Uber or Lyft and, or something like that. All right. So question number three, flight watch and headset for training question mark. Basically I'm hopefully starting my full-time flight training in March and I'm looking into different accessories, quote unquote, that might be, that might make things easier within the cockpit or more comfortable. Would a pair of a twenties be overkill for flight training in a Cessna 172 or a Technum? I'd probably get one since I started for an airline. Anyway, part of me is saying, why not get it from the start? Well, uh, there's a lot to go over in that. So you need to make sure that you get a TSO headset if you want to be able to use it in the airlines. And I would double check what headset you actually can use and what airline you want to go to. Nonetheless, you're going to need, before you go to an airline, you're going to need 1500 hours or so, uh, at least in this job market. You might as well get a good headset from the get-go. A20 is a great headset. It's not my favorite. I own a couple A20s, just I've collected them over the years. And I actually don't like them. I don't like how short the cord is. Uh, I don't like how they fit on my particular head. The thing that I really hate about it, because I use gel in my hair, is they've got this little padding on the top of it that is fuzzy. And I cannot stand the fuzzy padding on the top of it because it just gets all sticky and gross um, with being on my head with my gel in my hair. So I'm not a big fan of A20s. I am a big fan of Lightspeed. Uh, Lightspeed uh, makes fantastic headsets. They fit my head better. Uh, they have longer cords. Uh, they have Bluetooth. They have noise canceling. They have all the stuff the A20 has. I actually have like a $600 Lightspeed Sierra that I use all the time. And I really like it. Um, I also have a Zulu 2 and I want to get the, and I've got a Tango, a uh, Lightspeed Tango that I've given to Austin, which is the wireless one. I've liked all of my Lightspeed headsets. I would go get one right away. Go get a Lightspeed or actually go see what fits your head best and, and which one you, you actually like and what you think is more comfortable on your head. I know in Southern California, I'm lucky I have an aircraft spruce very close to me. I can go uh, try on headsets um, and see which one I liked best when I was trying to trying to figure out when I want to get a headset. Uh, I would just go ask your local flight school and see if there's any people around you that have different kind of headsets and ask them if you can put it on and test it out. That's kind of everything on a headset. But yes, go get a headset. Go get a good headset from the get-go. 
when I first started, I actually used my grandfather's headset that I found after he passed away. And it was a fantastic headset to use uh, for my private because I didn't know any better. It was not noise canceling. It was from the 80s. It was not a great headset to use. It probably damaged my hearing, most likely. Go get a good headset, save your hearing, be happy about it. Other accessories you need. First off, do whatever your flight school tells you. If your flight school tells you and you're in a, a collegiate program or you're in a professional pilot program, they say, go buy this kit. It's required for a 141 program or something like that. Go buy everything they tell you to buy. But when you first start your training, all you really need is a good headset, which we've already talked about, and you need a knee board. Go get a knee board for sure. Must have a knee board on you. Uh, some people like a knee board with their iPad. I think that's too much technology in the beginning of flight training personally. So I would go get a knee board and make sure that uh, it's taken care of because that knee board is going to be probably the most beneficial thing you, you ever have in your cockpit. I write down so many notes. I write clearances. I write all sorts of stuff on that knee board. And that is just as important uh, as a headset. Other than that, I wouldn't get really anything else unless your flight school tells you you either have to or you need to. I think the flight watch is too much. Uh, it's just going to distract you. You're going to keep looking at it. Just wear a regular watch or don't wear a watch at all. You don't really need it. Uh, there, If you're doing IFR training, you're going to have a clock in your cockpit regardless, or you're going to have an iPad at that point. So just those two things are probably the most important in my, my opinion. The uh, next question we're going to tackle is cross-country flight training. Hi, I'm currently doing my PPL, and I was curious to when cross-country flight training starts and how instructors generally go about it. Is a cross-country flight first completed with your instructor, and you cross -country, do cross-country training completed before you solo cross-country? Please tell me if there's anything else to know. So that was a little convoluted with words kind of all over the place, but I'll break it down. So they're kind of curious on when they're going to do a cross-country and how it's going to go, and... I'll tell you this, every flight school, depending on what syllabus you use and program you use, is going to be a little bit different. But generally, you, unless you're in a uh, going to one of the really large flight schools in the nation, one of the really large flight schools in the nation actually does uh, cross-country before you ever do a local solo, um, which I understand the reason for it. They want you to have more flight time and more experience before you solo. It probably lowers their insurance rates and things like that. But typically, and over the years, most flight schools will do this in multiple steps. They get you ready to do a solo, and you're going to do a solo around the pattern. You do three full stop, full stop landings, and you're going to do that. That's going to be your first solo, and you celebrate, and, and whatever your flight school does, maybe they'll cut the back of your shirt, or they'll uh, dump a bucket of water on you, or they'll just give you a high five, whatever it may be. After that, you're going to go into cross-country flight planning portions of uh, flight training, typically. Uh, so then you go into to learn cross-country flight planning. And, uh, and after you do that, you'll typically go on a cross-country with your instructor. If that goes really, really well, then they're going to give you a solo cross-country endorsement. And you're going to go do that same exact cross-country solo. Sometimes it takes multiple times of you going to that airport that's a minimum of 50 nautical miles away. If it does take you multiple times, don't worry. It's it's very common. It happens. And cross-country flight training is, is probably one of the more difficult, but the most rewarding part, because now it's putting together everything you've learned into something practical, actually going somewhere, uh, which is my favorite thing to do. I mean, when I get an airplane, I don't like to just go in the pattern and go putt-putt around unless maybe I'm flying my new 120, uh, which I am enjoying that right now. But you can actually go somewhere. You can go get that 
hundred dollar hamburger, quote unquote. You can go get that food that you want to try. You can do, go do all these fun things that are part of a cross country. So after you do that cross country solo, uh, then you're going to uh, practice and get ready for that long cross country solo. Uh, you're going to do the long cross country, and then you're getting going to get into uh, the end of your flight training uh, for at least private pilot, and uh, and that would be check ride prep, and uh, that can go anywhere from just three hours, which is the FAA minimum, to uh, multiple flights. It kind of depends on what you need to work on. Uh, but uh, that's kind of how, how it goes from zero to cross-country flight planning. And the last question I have today, it's going to be a short one. What's a commercial jet that you regret not flying on? So there's one jet that I've always wanted to be on and I've always wanted to be a passenger on. And I don't know how many there are left in the world for me to even do this. So I think I'm just going to have to go look this up because I know they stopped manufacturing them last year. And I don't know how many more passenger versions there there are available. I know there's quite a few versions of this airplane doing cargo, but I don't know how many more passenger jets. And that is the Boeing 747. I want to fly in a 747 business class or first class so badly uh, that I may just find a 747 that's still being used. And I'm going to go somewhere just to go fly that airplane because I think that would be a fantastic airplane to go fly in uh, just in the back. Um, I don't even have any inclination to go learn how to fly it. Uh, I just want to fly in it. Uh, it seems like a, f- a fun airplane just because it was the queen of the sky and it's so big. And I would probably want to go fly a, an Airbus A380 as well. I think being in the back of that airplane would be a lot of fun too. They're almost the same size. Well, thank you guys for uh, for joining me today. Uh, unfortunately, Carson wasn't here and uh, he will be missed in this episode. But I hope you got something out of these five questions. And please feel free and reach out to me. As usual, if you'd like to reach out to me, you can reach out to me at Twitter or Instagram at Mr. Martini Guy. Or you can reach out to Carson at Carson underscore AV17. And as Carson always says, as we wrap up the day, remember, we're here to guide you in your aviation journey. Fly safe and enjoy the ride. Thanks so much, guys.